we are going to read the Bible. We're going to read a chunky bit from Ezekiel this morning. going to do chapter 8, 1 to 18, and chapter 11, 14 to 25. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked, and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance, north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing, the utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, I looked, and I saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. We're going to chapter 11, 14 to 25. 18, sorry, I did mark that wrong. Um, back to <laughs> 8, verse 9. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they're doing here. So I went in and looked, and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel, and Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was sitting among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there, mourning the god Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they're doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. Now chapter 11, 14 to 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said, of your fellow exiles and all the other Israelites. They are far away from the Lord. 
This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore, say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I've been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I'll give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove them from their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They'll be my people and I'll be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of God, the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. Then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. Kels, morning everyone. My name's Nathan, if I haven't met you. And it is a bit of a chunky reading this morning. A lot to work through, so let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we pray that we might worship you now with our minds and with our hearts. Pray, Lord, that the meditations from your Word this morning may not fall on deaf ears. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning by admitting that I was wrong. If you were with us three weeks ago when we started this journey in Ezekiel, uh, I began by saying that the entrance to a house gives you a hint on what you might find on the inside. Remember that? Well, I was wrong. Because it turns out that sometimes it's the exact opposite. Instead of giving you a hint, sometimes the outside actually hides what's going on on the inside. Take the, the Julian Prince Hillside Mansion, for instance, which is in North Carolina. It was built in 1922 and it's massive. 9,000 square foot home, has 31 rooms. It's impressive. And from the outside, you would never guess that this house was actually the centerpiece for a two-part episode of the show, Hoarders. If you've ever seen that before. Turns out that every single one of these 31 rooms was filled with stuff. Wall to ceiling. You couldn't even move through the place. It was filled with stuff. Sometimes the outside hides what's really going on inside. That's true for the picture that we get of Israel this morning in our passage, and it can also be true, of course, for us. If it's your first time with us today, or first time perhaps back this term, welcome, it's great to have you here. Uh, this is week three in our walk through the, the ancient Old Testament book of Ezekiel. If you don't know much about the second longest book in the Bible, don't worry, you're in good company. And that's just one of the reasons why we're getting stuck into it together this term. Another reason why we're looking at this book is for the way that Ezekiel reveals really important things to us about God. 
hopefully you picked that up in the intro video that we just watched. But this is a book that is all about him. Israel had lost connection with who he was, right? They had forgotten him. They had lost sight of him. They'd loosened their grip on him and they'd fallen out of love with him. And so in the end, God says to them, well, you know what? If, if you don't want to live with me, why don't you go and live with someone else? And over the span of 150 years, that's what happens. First, at the hands of the Assyrian Empire to the Northern Kingdom, and then the hands of the Babylonians, which is what's happening right now for Judah. They get whisked off into exile. And so Ezekiel's ministry, almost unlike any other prophet in the Old Testament, takes place actually during exile, while God's people are in a foreign land, under foreign rule, and they're sitting there wondering, how did this all go so wrong? Now, I warned you in the first week, and we got a taste of it in the second week with Scott, but this book starts dark. For those of you who've been in in midweek growth groups, I'm sure you're finding that as well. It starts dark, and really the the whole first half of this book is dark, precisely because it's about God's judgment. And the language and images that Ezekiel uses to describe what's gone wrong are among the most extreme and disturbing in the entire Bible. It's not because Ezekiel is overreacting, although it's easy for us to to maybe think that, but it's actually because Israel, God's people, have been underreacting. They'd missed the memo somehow, even after all the prophets that God had sent to them, even after getting decimated by first the Assyrians and now the Babylonians, Israel's hearts had become so hardened, they were actually in denial and they couldn't see what God was doing and why God was doing it. And at this point in the, in the book of Ezekiel, in the conquest by the Babylonians, Jerusalem actually is still intact and the, the temple is actually still standing. And so the people are looking at this and, going, and they're actually putting their hope in that. It's like, you know what, if the temple is still good, we must still be good as well. God must still be with us. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And we see that reality in our passage today. Uh, That's why the talk of judgment here in Ezekiel is so extreme and uncomfortable. God's people are underreacting to their sin. And so the disturbing images and language is actually meant to try to jog them, shake them, and say, this is what's actually going on, this is what it looks like to God. And it it totally makes for uncomfortable reading for us. I, I get that. But you know what? Uncomfortable is okay. Uncomfortable is okay, because it's actually part of the gospel. Did you know that? The good news actually begins with bad news, doesn't it? Repent, Jesus says. Repent and believe the good news. The truth is, we actually need to feel the weight of the problem before we can taste the sweetness of God's solution. So, you know what? Uncomfortable is okay. And I imagine Ezekiel is fairly uncomfortable as he gets kind of pulled through this vision in our passage this morning. The Spirit of God, we're told, actually picks him up by the hair (laughs) and gives him a tour of the 
temple in Jerusalem. That wouldn't work for me. I don't know how he would do it if, if it was me he was giving the vision for. But it's an odd mode of transport, right? To be plucked up by your hair and carried around. We don't exactly know why. Perhaps it was because Ezekiel was reluctant. It was the only way that God could make him go. Or perhaps it was actually just to give this sense that it happened right in the middle of him doing something else, right? He's just been plucked out of what he was doing. Either way, though, this is the second vision that Ezekiel has been given. And it's actually 14 months on from the first vision, which we saw in week one by the Kibar River. And what I really like about this vision is the way that Ezekiel gets to go inside. He takes a look inside the temple compound. But really, what he's actually doing is he's taking a look inside the state of Israel's heart. That's what's happening. And as he takes a look at their heart, it offers us insight into God's own heart as well as into our hearts. Their heart, his heart, our heart. That's where we're going. As Ezekiel is whisked off to take this tour of the temple, what does he discover about Israel's heart? Well, in a word, it's crowded. It's crowded. He sees statues and images, people crying, people bowing. There is lots going on. Now, this is something similar to what what the temple may have looked like to Ezekiel as he was kind of dangling there by his hair. You've got inner courts and outer courts. And as you can see in the very middle, you've got the temple. Now, Ezekiel's vision actually focuses in on the area around the altar, which is right there in front of the temple itself. Now, first step on Ezekiel's whirlwind tour is a statue at the north gate, we're told. Would have been about there. Now, we're not told what the statue is, but it was highly likely that it was an Asherah pole. That might have looked something like that. Because in 2 Kings 21, we're told that King Manasseh actually put one of these up around about the same spot uh, that Ezekiel describes. Asherah was a fertility god uh, that the Canaanites worshipped. The next step involves Ezekiel digging through a wall of the temple and coming upon 70 elders of Judah, so the leadership of the nation. And they're there offering incense to images of crawling things. Now that could be a reference to the gods of Egypt, because the gods of Egypt are often represented as animals, uh, like Sobek, the god of war. The third stop on Ezekiel's tour is back outside with a group of women who are weeping before a god named Tammuz. Now, Tammuz was a Babylonian god, but the empire that just conquered them. And Tammuz got banished to the underworld, so that was why you kind of wept with him. The final stop is with a group of men who had their backs to the temple. I think that's fairly significant. And they're bowing down to the east, worshipping the sun, which could have been... Shemesh, who was a Phoenician sun goddess. So, it's a fairly crowded scene we have there around the temple. And it's worth pointing out, this is a vision. So, it's not an actual bird's eye view of the temple. He hasn't actually been physically transported the thousands of miles across the Arabian desert to Jerusalem. 
The real thing may have looked a bit different if he was there, in other words. What Ezekiel is getting is a God's eye view of the temple. So he's actually seeing what God sees when God looks at his people in worship. Inside their heart. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Inside their heart. So from the outside, at a distance, the the temple probably looked as glorious as it had always looked. And its presence in the center of Jerusalem was actually highly significant. It was making a profound theological statement, like a big flashing neon sign. God is with us, the temple was declaring, right? It was God's special dwelling place. It's where he, he came to dwell amongst his people. Highly significant. But just like the Julian Prince mansion, sometimes the outside ends up hiding what's going on on the inside. From the outside, the temple, it would have looked like a hive of religious activity, right? People buzzing around, doing things. You could even say, perhaps, that the temple was the most spiritual that it had ever been. And yet, the truth was, Israel's temple had never been empty. Chapters 10 and 11, Ezekiel watches as God's glory abandons the temple. It leaves. God leaves the temple. That had never happened before in the history of Israel. And it, it was massive and, and ironic. The same tragic irony, actually, as those who suffer from chronic hoarding. It's worth making me clear, actual hoarding is, is not a sin. It's a, it's, a, it's a mental health issue. So I'm not having a crack at anyone who suffers from it. But the irony is that those who do the more they accumulate, the less they actually have. That's the tragedy of it. The more they accumulate, the less they have because their their piles of possessions end up becoming piles of rubbish. How do you find what you're looking for in a room like that? So it was with Israel's heart. It had become so filled with religious rituals and so much spiritual devotion to all manner of foreign gods and goddesses, but the truth was they actually had nothing. It amounted to nothing. They just had a, a bunch of useless blocks of stone and worthless pieces of wood because any god that has to be fashioned by human hands is surely no god at all. In their quest to accumulate everything, Israel actually misplaced the one thing that mattered most, their relationship with the God who had fashioned them, with the God who had saved and redeemed and loved them. And in so doing, they also lost their purpose, the point of the whole thing. Because you see, worshipping Yahweh alone was actually to be the key defining feature of this nation. It was to be the light that was meant to draw all the other nations to worship their God with them. And instead, Israel went and worshipped the nation's gods. In a world of hoarders, Israel were called to be the people with just one God, one devotion, one love. And so by going and adopting these other gods, they weren't just offending Yahweh, of course, which they were. 
they were failing the nations. Instead of being a light, they became a life. Instead of standing out, they blended in and they, they switched off the light that was meant to, to draw the nations to their God. <laughs> what a tragedy. What a tragedy. And it's in this tragic light that we come to God's response, which plays out here in our vision today, giving us a glimpse of His heart. Now, we weren't able to read from chapters 9 and 10 this morning, we just would be here forever, but if you read through them this week, you'll see that God's response is judgment. It's judgment. Chapter 9 in particular is very confronting. It, it has echoes of God's judgment against the Egyptians when the angel of the Lord took out all the firstborn sons. It has echoes of Joshua's conquest of Canaan where the command was, leave no one alive. It's shocking. But the implication of chapter 9 is crystal clear, right? God is going to deal with his people exactly as he deals with enemy nations. That is a staggering thought. In the first week of the series, you were here, you might remember, I spoke of how God is far apart, us, in his holiness. That his holiness is so great and so pure that nothing unholy can stand to be in his presence. God had endured Israel's unholy idolatry for long enough. Israel had actually been dabbling in idolatry since the moment God sprung them from slavery in Egypt. This has been an issue for Israel the whole way through. And God had tried to teach them. He tried to correct them and rebuke them. And he'd sent prophet after prophet to warn them and to call them back. Friends, our God is long-suffering. More than we'll ever know. And yet there is an end to his patience. There is a line that is drawn and a moment that comes when he will endure our rebellion no longer. And for the people of Judah, that moment is unfolding right in front of us in the pages of Ezekiel. They've been worshipping other gods in his house, on his land, with his stuff. But they would do so no more. Throughout Israel's history, God had sent prophets commanding them, commanding the nation to destroy their idols and to turn back to God. And yet time after time, Israel refused. And so in the end, God's like, hey, if you're not going to destroy your idols, then Babylon will. Along with everyone who's still clinging to them. God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonian Empire is him doing what his people refused to do themselves. One way or another, the land would be cleared of idolatry. And so in chapters 10 and 11 of our vision this morning, Ezekiel watches as God's glory leaves the temple. It's really the final step that paves the way for Babylon to sweep through five years after this vision and completely lay waste to Judah transforming God's holy city and his holy temple 
into a pile of rubble. For God to hand his city over to destruction is about as severe a response as it gets. Here's how he puts it in Jeremiah. I will forsake my house, God says. Abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. That's how God puts it. It's inconceivable that God would allow such a thing to happen, and yet the severity of this judgment testifies to the depth of Israel's idolatry. It had gotten so bad that the only way to make it right was to actually allow His holy temple to be reduced to rubble. What does that say about how bad the problem had become? What about us, though? about us? Are we prone to worship foreign gods like Israel did? What does Ezekiel's vision reveal about the state of our own hearts? I wonder. You know, I think it's easy for us to look at Israel like they were a bunch of idiots. Why would you worship a piece of wood? It seems silly. And yet, just think about it for a moment. <laughs> They were after the same kinds of things that we all are. They wanted to be comfortable. They wanted to feel safe and secure. They wanted success in their work. They wanted to have a happy family. And as they looked around, they saw nations, their neighbors, who had a God for every worry and a goddess for every ambition. I mean, they weren't looking for a relationship with Asherah. They just wanted to gain her favor in order to have another baby or secure a bumper crop. I like the way that the 16th century reformer Martin Luther describes idolatry. Just for the simplicity, he says, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. So what does your heart cling to? What do you rely upon? Ezekiel was given a God's eye view of inside the house of your heart. What what do you think he would see? In the dining room of your soul. What are the appetites and desires that are driving you? What are the things that you crave the most, the things that you long for right now? Or in the lounge room of your mind, what do you fill it with? What do you spend your time pondering? What is it that occupies your thought life and your fantasies? Or in the office of your career and achievements, Now, what impact is work having on your heart right now? Is this the room where your true significance gets crafted? Are you in the business of making a name for yourself and leaving a legacy? What about the kitchen where family gathers? What do you sacrifice in the name of catering to your children's every want? What price are you willing to pay gain your parents' approval or to keep your spouse happy. I wonder what the bathroom would reveal 
time spent in front of a mirror? What priority do you give to appearances? Whose opinions matter the most to you? How closely is your self-worth tied to a look or to a body shape or to a fashion trend? Then there's the bedroom. Stuff we don't want anyone else knowing about. So we keep it in the dark, flip the switch, turn the lights off so that no one will see. But of course, this is a God's eye view. There's nothing he cannot see. I wonder, what would that kind of tour look like for you? (laughs) Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, right? Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's money or status or family or property or success or pleasure. If it's not God that you're clinging to, if it's not God that you're relying upon, that's a big problem. It's a big problem for the exact same reasons it was a problem for Israel. We are His creations, aren't we? We're made by Him. And this is His world. It's not ours. And so, of course, whenever we worship anything above Him, then we're living as if He's not the Creator. We're living as if this place is not His. And we're actually denying the truth of existence. It's not just wrong. It's incredibly offensive. In fact, there's nothing more offensive than living like that. Last Sunday was Mother's Day. I wrote my mum a card. But imagine if the card I gave to my mum didn't say how much I loved her, how much I appreciated her, but instead, imagine if I wrote on the card, Dear Mum, I don't want to see you, and I don't want to speak to you. I don't care that you gave birth to me. I don't care what you might have given to me. I don't care what you've sacrificed for me. And I certainly don't care that you love me. So what? From this day forth, I'm actually going to act like you don't even exist. Happy Mother's Day. How is it that saying something like that makes us more uncomfortable than the thought that we might be worshipping something other than God? Because as terrible as a card like that might be, and as bad as the relational fallout would definitely be, It is so much worse when we're talking about the creator of the universe. How crowded is your heart? As you answer that question, don't make the mistake of just looking at your outsides. Because sometimes it's those who look the most religious, who look the most spiritual, who are in fact the ones who have hearts that are hoarding That was a flaw of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, wasn't it? They were ticking boxes, but their hearts weren't ticking. They looked alive, but they were spiritually dead. Sometimes the outside hides what's really going on inside. How crowded is your heart? Now that's the bad news. You know what the good news is? God's heart is not crowded out with other things. He loves 
you. He loves you. And he loved Israel even as he allowed them to be carried off into exile. We can see that in chapter 11, the end of Ezekiel's vision. Even though God, God's people had been scattered, what does he say there in verse 16? Yet for a little while, I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries they have gone. You see, God might have abandoned the temple in Jerusalem, but he became a temple for them in exile. He actually went with them. And in the very next verse, he promises that one day he's going to return them to the land. That, that their current exile is actually not going to be their end. It's amazing. And then it gets even more incredible, if that was even possible. There in verse 19, he says these words, I will give them an undivided heart and I'll put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Wow. God promises to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. He promises to solve the problem of their idolatry by going to the very heart of the matter. After all they'd done against him, God was still willing to rescue and restore and even replace their hearts. Friends, this is the Lord Ezekiel wants us to know. Though we might give up on him, he doesn't give up on us. And we know that because this promise was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of his son, Jesus. I mean, if the destruction of God's holy temple was inconceivable, how much more the death of his holy son? That moment when God did for us what we refused to do for ourselves, only this time... Instead of sending a foreign power to clear away our idols, God turned the judgment on himself. Even more than the fall of Jerusalem, the severity of the judgment that was poured out onto Jesus testifies to just how depraved the world's idolatry had become. Our denial of God is so offensive and detestable. He had to spill his own blood in order to make it right. God had to die in order for us to live. And he was willing to do that for you even while you were in the middle of worshipping something else. Friends, there is no greater insight into his heart than that right there. That is our God. You know, the antidote to idolatry isn't to just clear the idols from our hearts, as necessary as that may be. Emptying the rooms is actually only part of the equation. Of course, we need God to fill the space in our hearts with himself, with the Spirit. For God to so crowd our hearts that there's actually no room left to worship anything else. We can actually pray for him to do that and to keep doing that. Because friends, we need to worship God the most, don't we? We need to love him more than anything else. And we don't do that by looking longingly at all the idols that might be around us. We do that by looking to the cross for longer. And as we do, feeling the weight of our sin that put God there, 
and yet marveling in wonder at the kind of love that led him to do it. Before I finish in prayer, I'm just going to give us all a moment to let all of that sink in. Perhaps you'd like to spend that time examining your own heart or maybe asking God to fill to fill your heart with Him or maybe just spend that time looking at the cross a little longer. Then I'll close in prayer. Father God, we are so sorry for those times when our hearts get crowded out, when we go after other things, when we cling to and rely on other things. We're sorry, Father. Thank you for the words of Ezekiel this morning. We pray that they would penetrate to our very hearts. We ask, Lord, that we might look to the cross for longer in thankfulness and in praise at what you've done for us in the offer of giving us new hearts and a new spirit. Lord, we pray that you would continue to fulfill that promise in our lives this day and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to an end of our service, we're going to have a final song. And I actually can't think of a, a better song to follow up this passage in Ezekiel. We're going to remain seated. I just encourage you to reflect on the words as they're sung for us and continue to just meditate on what God's been saying to you from His Word this morning.